I have a tough time uh, staying off social media. And it's, you know, there, there are days where uh, I used to have at least days where I could do nothing but, you know, like surf Twitter and, and, and engage in conversations and, you know, tell myself this is actually work when it's usually just fighting and, and nonsense. Um, so I but I just could not stop myself. I would tell, I'd give myself goals, okay, just, you know, only one hour, only 30 minutes or only at the end of the day or, or what have you. And I just couldn't. I couldn't resist. When I once I turned on, um, and I started checking, I, I'd be in this loops so where I'd be like going between um, Twitter, Facebook, email, Twitter, Facebook, email. I'd be doing that for hours, and it was horrible. So the only thing that I found to work for me is essentially, a, you know, what economists call pre-commitment devices. <laughs> Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. This episode is brought to you by my weekly email newsletter, Dear Luke. I write this newsletter for two reasons. The first is that a newsletter is generally considered to be a useful tool in building an authorial career. And since it's my intention to have an authorial career, I'm trying to get the newsletter dialed in. I want to play the game, and I want to play it well. Which leads to the second reason, trying to find content that makes sense as an email newsletter. I struggled for a while to find the right venue to place more intimate forms of writing, in which I discuss the challenges that I'm currently facing and what I find helpful in addressing them. And I've come to think that this is the right sort of thing to send directly to somebody's inbox. I've really enjoyed doing it so far, and I hope you can find some resonance in what I write there. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do so on my website, codycommerce.com newsletter, and uh, I'd really appreciate it, especially if you enjoy Cognitive Revolution or any of my other work. It's actually probably the biggest thing you can do right now to support me, and so it'd mean a lot. You can also subscribe to Cognitive Revolution on whichever platform you'd be listening through, or leave a review on iTunes, or follow me on Twitter, at Cody Commerce. All of those also help a lot. Okay, so my guest today is Mickey Inslicht. He actually wanted to be a dentist when he grew up, but unfortunately he only made it as far as professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto with a joint appointment in the Rotman School of Management. He represents one psychologist and two beers worth of the Two Psychologists, Four Beers podcast. He's someone who I look up to a whole lot, and there's a lot about what he's been able to do in his own career that I'd like to be able to do in mine. A successful podcast, professor in social neuroscience, which is a similar topic to the lab that I'm doing my PhD in, strong family life, and he seems to have a lot of fun doing all of that stuff. He's done a lot of excellent work over the course of his career, my favorite of which is probably the effort paradox, which is the idea that the more effort something costs us to pull off, the more we value it. The paradox is that uh, we're, we're still, for the most part, effort-averse creatures, trying to avoid unnecessary hard work, and are unlikely to begin things that we think necessitate a ton of it. So uh, in this episode, we talk about his background in psychology, especially as a first-gen college student. Uh, Mickey gets into his three top productivity tips that work for him. We also talk shop about pods, how he started his, as well as the podcast ecosystem more generally. We wrap up discussing effort, value, meaning, and other topics related to Mickey's research. So it's a, a fun conversation, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with all of you. 
But uh, that's enough of me. Here is Mickey Inslet. Um, so let's see, I want to get into sort of talking about your background as a scientist. And um, yeah, so you did your undergrad uh, at McGill in uh, anatomical sciences. So uh, what, what, so that's obviously not necessarily what you ended up doing directly. So how did you get interested in anatomy? And then when did you start to realize that you are, you were interested in psychology? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, for, for a long time, uh, as long as I could remember as a kid, uh, I wanted I wanted to be a dentist. Uh, that's what I wanted to be. That was my, my life's ambition. Um, it's a strange ambition to have because it's, uh, I don't think a lot of people see that as a job that they would like to have. Um, I think uh, this is kind of a story that my aunt, a very almost like a second mom to me, tells of uh, she lives in New York City and we were, in, we were in the city and I guess there was some fancy car, sports car that drove past us in Manhattan and uh, I was like, whoa, look at that car. That's so cool. And uh, I think my aunt, you know, offhandedly mentioned, oh, well, if you wanted a car like that one day, you know, being a dentist would be a good thing. And I, I think that's why I had, you know, this desire implanted in me at such an, a young age. Uh, but anyways, uh, that's, you know, that's what I pursued. I took all the science classes in high school. Um, and then, yeah, and McGill, uh, that was what I was, you know, I was told, you know, we can... The, the best majors to, uh, to major in, the best topics to major in, uh, would be either anatomy and anatomical sciences or microbiology. So I kind of essentially did a bit of both. And uh, yeah, and, I, and then I took psychology. Uh, I never had psychology in high school. So I'm from Quebec, and Quebec, we've got a, like a, a junior college between high school and university. I never took any psychology classes there either. Um, mostly because in the sciences are so, so many requirements, so many classes that one needs to take. There was very little room for kind of extra four interest classes. So uh, yeah, I started taking some psychology classes, and mostly because they fit my schedule. And um, but I started liking them, and eventually I had enough classes that uh, I could get a minor without you know doing any extra work. So I just kind of got a minor. Um, and then in my last year, I actually applied to dental dental schools, um, and I did uh, what's called the the DAT, the Dental Aptitude Test. So it's uh, the equivalent of the MCAT, the kind of the entrance exam for uh, medical school, but there's a, there's a dental version of it. And I think it's very similar to the MCAT uh, with one major difference. And that one major difference is that you need to actually uh, demonstrate some sort of manual dexterity. So you actually are given, um, well, back in the day, you were given uh, pieces of chalk. Uh, later, they, they switched to, you know, these tubes of soap, I mean, uh, of hard soap. And then you'd, you'd be given a, a knife and you have to carve things out of the chalk or, or soap, um, you know, in very specific dimensions, uh, shapes, angles, etc. And then you were evaluated on your, on your little uh, construction. And I remember practicing for that. That was the hardest part for me. I mean, I was the... the the uh, the science part, the math, uh, I could you know had enough of a background that I could just brush up on that relatively easily. But it was the actual carving of soap that was uh, new and challenging and, and quite difficult actually. Um, anyways, I took the exam and I got I, I had some interviews, and as I was preparing for my interviews, I was like, you know, they're probably going to ask me why I want to be a dentist, and 
I should probably have, or I should probably know what that is. Why do I want to be a dentist? And, and you know, uh, maybe I was uh, late to introspection, but that was the first time I really started asking myself, well, why do you want it? Why are you doing what you're doing here? Um, and the only answer I could come up with was that they made loads and loads of money. So <laughs> I thought... Uh, and then you were like, great, okay, oh, that's, that's exactly the, that's all I need to know. Yes, exactly. That's it. That's it. I only have one one, one criterion here, and, and like, it, it's filled it. Excellent. So I have a great. Yes, reason. that's right. Well, obviously, I, I you know I thought well I need more than that, and <clears throat> although I could come up with some uh, for the purposes of an interview, well, you know I could like hand wave and um, give them reasons. Uh, none of the reasons were uh, to my satisfaction. Um, so I took a pause and I I said you know what maybe I don't maybe I don't want to go to dental school, and maybe I need to rethink things. And I, so I graduated. This was my senior year uh, that I was, uh, you know, had this kind of realization. And uh, uh, so I graduated and then took time off. I worked at a mall for, for you know, in a, in a mall store, in, in retail for a little bit. And then I traveled. Uh, Which went store to, was it? Uh, well, you're, 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 uh, if you have an American audience, they won't know what it's called, the, uh, the telephone booth. It's, uh, it's a, it was a, a more popular chain in Canada for at least in Quebec and Ontario, um, What's the telephone? I've never even heard of it. Yeah, it's uh, well, so I, I, I worked in Quebec and from Montreal, so uh, it's also called La, La Cabine Telefonique. So it's this place where, you know, it's kind of an, a, a store you wouldn't see anymore because it's a place where you'd buy telephones, not necessarily, um, you know, smartphones or cell phones. At the time, they were actually landline phones. And then you had some, some, some fancier ones that had answering machines or they had ones that, you know, they also sold faxes. Eventually, they started selling... Um, cell phones as well but that was a small part of the business when i was when i was working there um well so, but, but so how so sorry to derail on this but so how did you go from okay well i'm i'm, I'm a mcgill pre-dental student going on my way to make loads of money to working at the telephone how did you feel about that where did you i mean did you like it did you pick it pick just end up in it did you like just need money that probably what where were you at at that yeah, that's a good question. So this is, I graduated in uh, 1994 uh, from, from McGill. And at that point, at least in Canada, there was a recession and uh, youth unemployment or unemployment among, you know, people of a certain age, uh, including the age I was at the time, was, it was pretty high, at least in Canada and especially in, um, in Montreal. So this is, again, historically, uh, we're one year uh, removed from a, a major, major referendum in Canada that nearly broke up the country. Uh, so the economy in, in Montreal and Quebec was not very good. And... Um, yeah, so I, you know, it wasn't so easy to get a job. Also, I wasn't imaginative. Maybe I didn't, I didn't look at the other possibilities, but I, I knew it was just a, it was just a pit stop. It was just a, a temporary stop um, that I wanted to go back uh, to school. Eventually, um, I had taken uh, again that minor in psychology, and I thought maybe I could do something with that. Maybe that would be uh, maybe there's something there. I didn't know what. Um, I thought uh, that. I might go into IO psychology, so industrial organizational psychology. I thought that would be useful. I thought maybe, I didn't actually know what it was, to be honest, but I thought that would be, you know, I would actually be working in businesses uh, and corporations and maybe advising and consulting and uh, helping businesses and corporations meet whatever needs they had. That was, that was all I knew. And so it sounded useful is, you know, I can get a job with it. I, I knew I was interested in psychology. So I thought maybe that could do something like that. But, um, I only had a minor in psychology, so I couldn't just go right into a, to, to a grad program. And also 
Um, my grades were not the best grades, um, mostly because uh, my values were a bit different at the time. I was, uh, I cared more about uh, socializing at McGill. I cared more about, you know, drinking beers and uh, finding, you know, finding a girlfriend, essentially. Um, so the, the, that was what I spent most of my time on, just kind of uh, socializing, partying. Uh, and, you know, I, I did okay. I did well, but not well enough to get into uh, to grad, to a grad program. So, and I didn't have the, I didn't have the major anyways. So I knew I needed to go back to, to university and, um, brush up, get a second major or get a, an equivalent of a second major. I needed to get, I knew I needed to get research experience. I knew, I knew I needed to get my grades up. So anyhow, I, I decided I'll take a year off. I worked at this kind of, uh, what we'd called back then a Joe job and, um, saved up some money. And then the, the point was to save up money and to go traveling for a little bit. And then I did that. I went to Israel. I went to I lived in a kibbutz for four months, where I'm not sure if your listeners know what that is. It's I think it's less popular these days, but it's uh, essentially these um, a kibbutz are these little mini cooperative uh, communities. They're they're communist communities um, where no one makes money. There, it's a shared uh, shared pile of money. People go there from all over the world and volunteer, and then they get a they get room and board. They get a, a tiny little stipend to buy stuff from the little kibbutz store. Um, they get a few days off a month and yeah, I met people from all over. It was fantastic. So did you, do you feel like you learned something that stuck with you? Was there any, anything that sort of got ingrained in you during your time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, again, I think, you know, early twenties, uh, I was, uh, uh, to put it mildly, not a popular kid in high school. So, uh, I felt, you know, uh, I missed out socially, and I, I th- that was what my main motivation at that point was to kind of um, make friends and uh, to have life experiences. I wanted to have something different out of sc- outside of school. I'd been in school my whole life, and I'd been a, a very obedient child, a good kid, and um, didn't have the, the 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 range of experiences that I wanted I wanted to have. So that's why university was what it was for me, and, and again, uh, and then the kibbutz, and the kibbutz was a wonderful experience. Um, so I'm not sure if I learned, I took anything specifically with me from my kibbutz experience other than, you know, um, again, like just having fun. And that's, that's a valuable thing. Uh, but having my job, having my, what I call my Joe job, I think changed the way I approached uh, academic work afterwards. And that was because I had been uh, working essentially uh, for... Uh, a nine to five job actually it was retail. So it wasn't always nine to five. Occasionally it was like 12 to nine or 12 to eight. Um, but it was eight hours a day, eight or let's say nine hours with a lunch and a break, whatever. Um, and I showed up every day and, and I did my work every day. And I quickly realized that if I, you know, could maintain a sort of nine to five schedule with my academic work that I would never need to work in the evenings, uh, never need to work on the weekends, that I could actually have a balanced schedule. But, but, you know, in in that nine to five period, in those days where I'm actually working, I actually need to work. I'm not fucking around. I'm not, you know, procrastinating. I'm not, um, you know, socializing. I'm actually working. So in that, you know, I went back to McGill after traveling and and, 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 uh, kind of took a bunch of, a lot of psychology classes and volunteered, uh, as a research assistant in a number of labs, but I was in the library. Uh, if I wasn't in the lab that I worked at, I was in the library, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. 
uh, but only not in the evenings, not on the weekends. And all of a sudden, my grades, I got straight A's. Um, I, uh, it wasn't necessarily hard. It was just I need to put, I mean, in the sense of like I couldn't do it. It was just I needed to put in the hours. And once I did that, um, it just, yeah, things, things just clicked into place. And then I kind of carried that attitude with me uh, in graduate school as well. So I, I had a lot of friends who had more... Um, you know, uh, handcrafted uh, schedules, if you will, you know, so uh, uh, schedules that were more, uh, you know, they, you know, maybe show up to their classes, maybe, you know, uh, work here, work there, but a lot of stuff in the middle of the day. But then when they had deadlines, they'd be scrambling in the evenings and the weekends. All my friends worked in the, on the weekends. So actually, even though I did not work on the weekends, I, I was kind of lonely because all my friends were. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it was kind of a... It, it, I, I, it, Good work habits were instilled on me because I worked out in the real world, um, for, for even just for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So I want to I want to kind of delve into this a little bit. This whole nine to five thing here, right? And so, kind of the implication of what you're saying is that to some extent, each of us has uh, an amount of work that we're capable of getting done on a weekly basis, and so sort of. Uh, you're saying that uh, for for this period, you were really, if, if you dedicated yourself from nine to five, you could get that done and you could have nights and weekends off. The sort of implication is that everyone else, they they were essentially spreading themselves thin over over the nights and the weekends, right? Where they were purporting to work during that time, but they weren't working at sort of the, the highest level of efficiency. That means they're actually getting shit done when they sit down to do it. So what do you think it is that, that blocks people from, from from sort of maintaining that highest level of productivity and focus um, uh, in a way that you know allows them to, to spread themselves too thin uh, and maybe not get as much work done as they feel like they are doing uh, in terms of the hours they're sitting in front of their laptop. Yeah, that's a good question. This kind of uh, a nice nice question because of course it segues into some of my work, but um, I think. Uh, you know, acad- academic work, uh, so being a professor, uh, being a student, these are largely, although not completely, but largely self-driven enterprises. So, I mean, once you get to university, uh, for the most part, um, you don't really have to attend class. I think that maybe, maybe there are some classes where attendance is, is taken. Um, it's really not in my university. Um, you know, attendance is, is, is not mandatory. Um, you don't have to do anything, in fact. And, uh, but if you don't do anything, you'll pay the consequence. But for some people, some people are, are gifted and smart or they can just like pull all nighters and cram. They could, in some sense, uh, work at a really, really concentrated level, um, for a short period of time and, and, and do okay and even do well. So that was me, um, before I had this kind of epiphany, this realization of, of, of kind of how, how better to work, I would just cram. I wouldn't, I wouldn't attend classes, you know, all that often. Um, I mean, I, I attended, but I, but if early classes, I would, all, I, I would, I would skip a lot. I'd show up late. Um, and I would just cram and, 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 you know, get the notes, read the textbook. And, you know, I would study a lot for my finals and my midterms, but I, I wasn't um, working on a consistent basis uh, throughout that time. And I, like I said, I did well, not well enough to get into like a decent graduate school, but um, my grades were, let's say, B pluses. Um, and uh, I think, again, it's because it's self-directed, because we're our own bosses. And if you don't realize... Uh, 
well, again, for me, it was just the realization that I can, in, in some sense, I could work, um, maybe I'm working more hours, but they're kind of lost hours anyways. Uh, during the day, during the week, I wasn't necessarily doing anything. It, it was really in the evenings and the weekends where there were possible social activities that I wanted to engage in that um, if I didn't have the schedule I had, um, I couldn't commit to uh, because I'd be busy on, the, on those times. So I think, you know, just the realization of spreading this out, you know, kind of understanding opportunity costs, that there's fewer opportunity costs during the day, might as well work then, um, then in the evening and, and weekends. I mean, that's what worked for me. Uh, but also, I think for me, uh, it's really important that I have this work-life balance. And I, and I don't do this out of some sort of, you know, moral stance. It's, that's, that's, how I, that's how I operate. I, I want to have fun. My life is short. And um, I'm a kind of person who, uh, I guess, the, that, that stupid uh, maxim, you know, work hard, play hard. I like to play hard. I like to do things, um, enjoy myself. And, and the only way I can do that fully uh, is if I know my work is done as well. So, yeah, th- that's just the way I schedule things. I, I'm 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 kind of fascinated with how much of your life it has proved to be structured around sort of the the pursuit of an adequate social life, right? Because not only the stuff that you've described, right, where uh, college was largely about sort of obtaining that social life, uh, you want to structure your time so you can do it in graduate school, which certainly is a sort of classic struggle of graduate students. And then not only that, I mean, you became a fucking social neuroscientist, right? You study the human sociology, human sociality for for a living, right? So, um, so there's there's some there's something about that that uh, clearly has sort of obsessed you in various ways throughout your uh, uh, your life and career in the best way possible. I think I think I think it's fantastic. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, that's an interesting observation. Uh... Yeah, I'm not, I mean, I guess maybe maybe at some point when I, you know, I, I mentioned how I only started introspecting, let's say, my senior year, uh, maybe I've continued <laughs> uh, since then, and uh, just thinking deeply about what I want. Uh, maybe sometimes not deeply enough, but I, I think I've, I've done it, and yeah, I realized this is, you know, um, I think we all we all have a set of values that are maybe not implicit, not explicit to us, and it's important to understand what our values actually are, and it's important also to act in accordance with your actual values. And for me, I mean, right now uh, I'm, I'm 47, I'm, I'm, a, I'm married, I've got two young kids. Um, so for me now, my values are my family. That's my number one thing. And, and then work is second. Now for, for I would say for a number of years, maybe, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> uh, for many years, uh, I, I think I, 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 I told myself that that is, those are my values that, um, you know, uh, family and friends uh, first and then, and then work. But I don't think I acted in, in that. I think I acted in such a way that work was still more important. So, yeah, maybe you're right. May, I mean, maybe I still kind of uh, divided my time up. I still had weekends and evenings free for the most part. Um, but uh, I still, in my mind, valued work probably number one. But that's changed uh, actively. I, I've tried to change that in the past few years as I've just... Um, yeah, I've just realized what's important in life. And I think when I was younger, um, friends, family, finding a romantic partner, you know, that was something that, 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 that took up a lot of my mental space, um, which I, I think it does probably for a lot of young people. Uh, you know, I, so what's the difference? What's sorry, sorry to interrupt. What's the difference between doing what you're describing at the superficial level, which is maybe what you're doing when you were, you were younger 
and doing it at the sort of deeper level that you are now? What do you think, uh, maybe even someone like me who's still at that younger level of, you know, okay, I purport to, uh, you know, really care about my social life and certainly I spend quite a bit of time on it. But perhaps if you, you know, I really do have that sort of more work-driven uh, in terms of the actual principles, right? So, so, so it's, there's some superficiality there and you have gotten some, some clarity recently on, on, on deeper level of it. What do you think, what do you think is that difference? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's just, you know, an, an awareness, an awareness of the decisions that I'm actually making, right? So, um, you know, our values are, are, are revealed by the choices we make as economists like to tell us. And I realize, I mean, and it's still an ongoing process. I, I don't want to pretend to be some, um, some Buddha here. Um, I've just, uh, yeah, I started realizing you know, I'm making these choices. So for example, the, I was, uh, I was on holiday. So, uh, uh, the, I was on, it was reading week for us uh, a couple weeks ago and, um, I'm very goal oriented. It's probably how I'm, I'm, I'm like as productive as I am. I'm, you know, I set goals for myself and I'm, and I'm, I, I feel the Zygarnik effect very deeply, meaning that I get lots of anxiety when I don't meet my goals. So, um, so, you know, I, I work very hard to complete my goals, but uh, sometimes I set goals for myself, even mundane goals that you don't really need to like, it's not that important. So for example, I was at, you know, I was at a holiday, um, and I had a goal. Okay. We're going to go for dinner now. Um, and okay, we're going for dinner now. And, and then as we're walking towards dinner, um, we bump into someone and we start having a, a lovely conversation. And because I'm this crazy goal-oriented person, I, I, I found myself getting annoyed by that social interaction. And I'm like, this person is preventing me from, you know, almost like a robot. This person is preventing me from, 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 from you know, meeting my goal of, of, of going to dinner. But then I kind of woke up for a second. I'm like, wait, hold on a second. Yes, it's true that I want to get food and that's a goal that I have. But my priorities are, you know, people being kind, learning about others. Um, it's fun to learn about those things. So why am I in a rush? Well, you, so what? I mean, dinner is gonna, well, dinner will wait. Um, and then I could just relax and all of a sudden, you know, immerse myself in that in that conversation and be fully with that person and ha- actually have fun. Um, so just kind of like understanding that all these little moments in your life, uh, many of them are decision points and um, are you any one moment acting in line with your, with your goals or your values, your, your, and you know, sometimes there, 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 there are goal conflicts and that, what I just described, getting food, that's one goal, socializing, you know, being kind is another goal. Sometimes there's conflict, but then, you know, there are priorities, there are differences in goals in terms of how important they are, how much value they, they, you know, you, you, you ascribe to them. Um, and again, eating is flexible, so I can eat later, um, that's just one small silly example. Um, That's such a great example, though, because I, I, I personally, as another goal-oriented person, I relate to that so deeply. Where you have this completely contrived goal uh, that is is really not important in the grand scheme. It's gonna it's gonna get accomplished at some point in, in due course, and yet you get so hung up on, uh, you know, sort of fixated on it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, so it, it plays out in so many other realms. So, you know, um, I'm, like I said, I'm a dad. I've got two young kids, and and I love them a lot, and I want I want them to be happy. And I want to give them as much as I can, and uh, that but that means sacrifices uh, on my part. Uh, I've got to give up things that uh, that I want to be doing, including potentially doing work. So, like my my kids are now at the age where they're they're quite independent. 
um, but not independent enough. Like I, we still need to, to get them to places and drive them around. We live in the city. Um, it's not easy. Well, I mean, they're not yet ready to take public transit. Um, so uh, it means me, you know, driving, you know, driving them around all over the, all over town. And during those times, I could be working. I could be watching Game of Thrones. I could be, you know, podcasting. I could be doing other things that I want to be doing. But again, my value is family and and, and nurturing them and, and and being kind to them. And so when I catch myself um, resenting, and again, this is an ongoing process. But when I catch myself being like, "Nah, I know, I, you know, I'm not sure we can sign you up for soccer uh, because that's gonna be three extra days a week." And you know, it's I being, you know, what this is important to you, and we'll make it happen. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of realizing what, what what what's actually important right. in life. Um, yeah, it sounds like a a job with a lot of schlepping involved. Yeah, definitely. Uh, at this age, so there's one one. Uh, sort of dynamic I want to bring in here, which is that you're a first-generation college student, right? Yep. So how is that? Do you feel like that's affected your um, path or what? what is that? What is that sort of, uh, how has that played out for you? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Thank you for asking. Um, yes, I put that on my website because I, I'm proud of it. I mean, I, I, for a long time, I was like, oh, I you know, I realized, oh, I'm the only one or the first one in my extended family who, who has attended university. And I was very proud of that. But, you know, then my, my brother also went, who's one year younger than I am. Um, and I should probably clarify uh, a, a, a couple of things. Um, so first... Um, I think in the U.S. there's a lot of weight, you know, put on this kind of this status of being a first-generation college student, whereas it wasn't so much a thing in Canada. I think there's a lot of first-generation people uh, who are going to university. I think university attending university is much more common. Uh, I believe, even if you look at the stats, um, Canada might be uh, might have the highest percentage of uh, university participation, possibly in the world. There was at least, at least, it's at least up there. Um, so it's a lot of, you know, immigrant, you know, I'm a, a son of, of immigrants and, um, a lot of immigrant kids who are, who are, uh, going to university more so than let's say in the U S I think, uh, and then in other places. Um, and the second, and, and I'm not, I hope this doesn't sound weird, but I'm Jewish and, uh, so I'm first generation college and, and Jewish, but, but Judaism is, 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 you know, is, is very interesting because as a culture, it's a culture that really, really values education. It really, really values reading and, and learning and arguing and debating. Um, so yes, it's true. I'm a first generation college student, but it was expected that I was going to go to university. Um, you know, it wasn't like I, um, it wasn't like some other stories I've heard of other first generation college students where not only were they the first ones to go to university, but their parents actively you know, not only did they not encourage them to go, they actively discouraged them from going. So I think my story is a little bit different than, let's say, the, some of the other stories you might hear, especially from, from Americans. So I don't, wanna, I don't want there to be any kind of um, misconstrual of what, my, what it means for me to be a first-generation college student. But that being said, um, uh, once I, especially once I hit grad school, um, I started just noticing uh, differences between myself and, and other people. So I grew up in a house with, with not very many books. Um, the Bible was around. Um, and and my, my parents, my, dad, my mom especially, would read, would read that. Um, and, but I never really, other than that, I would never really see my parents read books. Um, and, you know, to this day, uh, my parents, you know, they don't fully, fully understand what I do. I mean, I, over the years, you know, they learned more and more, but um, I can't really talk about work. Uh, 
uh, or ideas, really, like the kind of ideas that I, that I work on with my parents. And uh, I know that's not the case for other families. So like my wife, uh, um, her parents are both highly educated and I can talk to them, for example, about the things I do, things I think about, uh, things that occupy my mind. And I can, you know, get into kind of the conversations that I like, the kind of, the kind of conversations that I, that I have at the university with her parents, but not with my own. Um, but also there's like a kind of a tacit knowledge that I think um, uh, kids uh, who, whose parents went to university and in grad school, it, it, it's, it's even more than that. There's so many uh, kids I went to grad school with or, or now uh, uh, friends of mine who are professors whose parents were professors themselves. Or, or at the very least had PhDs. There's so many people I knew who, who had this kind of background, and I didn't have that, and, and, and um, I didn't have the same kind of knowledge that uh, these friends had about, you know, again, just how to, how to go about doing things, how to, how to, how to find opportunities. Um, uh, even just like, you know, the, the kinds of conversations you have around the dinner table. I just didn't have those kinds of conversations, and I felt like kind of like having them for the first time by reading books. And learning about them uh, firsthand, and then, but you know, now, now having them, uh, of course, uh, as a professor. So yeah, just, I, just, I just noticed differences, and I think there are, there are certainly advantages uh, uh, to having uh, parents who had been to university, and especially uh, again in, in, in my line of work, uh, um, parents who were professors themselves. So yeah, it was, it was a bit different, and and um, but you know, again, not a major I think uh, thing that held me back or anything, but. Uh, something that I noted, uh, something that I found myself kind of being different uh, um, along that dimension. So I want to talk maybe a little bit more about productivity. So we talked about goals a couple minutes ago. Um, and there's something I want to touch on here, which I'm just curious to sort of hear how you manage it, is uh, how you structure your goals, right? So do you have a to-do list? Do you have a sort of Excel spreadsheet? What sort of productivity regiment do you use? Yeah, that's a good question. So I used to have, uh, I used to do to do, uh, create to do lists. Um, and then I would tick them off. But now essentially I use my inbox, my, my use email as uh, my to do lists. So uh, the one thing that I really try to, to, to kind of hack, uh, is my email, uh, because it stresses me out a lot. So what I've done is I practice what's called uh, inbox zero, where at any one time, uh, uh, I, I typically have zero emails in my inbox. Um, if I have emails in my inbox, it's because I'm, I'm working on those items at the moment, uh, or I want to be working on those items like that day, or like that half day. And the reason I it's so important for me to have the inbox zero uh, is again, this is my, you know, trying to value the things I value um, that when I, uh, because like everyone else, I incessantly check, you know, my, my email. If I see all those, you know, tens or hundreds of items, you know, that stresses me out. It just reminds me of all the work I have to be doing. And if I'm taking time off, if I'm, you know, it's the weekend uh, or evening, and I want to be like spending time with my kids or friends. I don't need to be reminded of what work I need to do tomorrow. So um, it's uh, it's all about you know again making sure the values that I've set out for myself I can live them you know without uh, interference. Uh, and this is kind of like you know anticipating you know the emotions that that'll, that'll come up. Um, but uh, the other thing I do as part of my inbox regimen is uh, Google's now uh, Gmail now has a feature called Snooze. 
and I just will snooze items to the days when I expect to do them. So I don't, you know, uh, just kind of have them like piled up. Um, they're like, oh, I, I anticipate, like, so I got a bunch of, you know, uh, emails that were unsnoozed this morning for things that I'd, uh, I might have received during holiday, during break. I'm like, okay, I'm going to work on them, you know, this coming Wednesday. Um, and this way it's kind of, it just organizes my time and I'm always kind of, you know, uh, I'm not stressed out when I don't want to be stressed out, but I'm also staying on task. Uh, so that would be the, uh, one productivity tool or at least one, one activity that I engage in. Um, so I actually, I'm a big believer in inbox zero. Uh, I also practice it myself and, uh, though I will say it's a whole hell of a lot easier when you're at my stage of career versus your stage of career. Because I don't get nearly as much email as you do, um, but I think the the sort of underlying principle to this is uh, important. It's essentially that there is, I think, sort of a cognitive bias that we have, a sort of forecasting error, um, in in which we think about, okay, well, I don't I don't have time to do this right now. I'll have time to do it later, right? But of course, you're never going to have more time to do something later if you don't do something now. You're just going to put it off, and chances are you're going to put it off. Uh, sort of into the indefinite future. If you don't have a specific day in mind, like you were saying with snooze, if you don't have a specific day in mind, then you're just going to put it off indefinitely. And um, uh, I think keeping uh, inbox clutter down and using it the way that you're describing uh, sort of uh, is, is one way of overcoming that forecasting bias. And the other thing about that is that the vast majority of tasks that we have to do are going to take relatively small amount of time, right? So how often, I mean, so I, I know personally, there was this one thing recently what I was supposed to do uh, for, for my professor. And uh, I, I kept being like, okay, well, next Friday, I'm going to do it. And then next Friday, and it, took, it took me three uh, three weeks to do. And when I finally sat down to do it, it took me 10 minutes, right? Um, and so there's so many things throughout our day that it's going to take you between two minutes and 10 minutes. To do. So if you just bang them out now, that is really the only way to optimally organize doing all of them as opposed to putting off uh, to, a, to a later date, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so that's, uh, yeah, that's another kind of thing I do is like some, some, e some responses to emails can be done in 30 seconds. Just do them. Um, don't bother reading it and then putting it off and then reading it again and putting it off. Like just do the thing. Um, some of them require more, you know, more time and thought and action. So those are the ones that I might snooze or schedule them for when I have time. Um, but yeah, just realizing, and, and I used to do, I used to have this elaborate, um, folder system. I don't have any more folders. I just, it's, it's all just like, am I acting them, acting on them or not? And then once I've acted on them, they're archived. And I don't see them anymore. Oh, so you don't put them into like, oh, here's uh, students, here's, uh, colleagues, here's, you know, personal life. That no, I used to do that. Now, now I've just, uh, I, uh, because of Google's great search function, I can always find the emails I want to find. And, uh, it just, I, I realize I don't actually need the filing system. I just need to know, I just need to do them or not do them. And I need, to, I need them to appear when I want to do them. Uh, and then I need to snooze them when I, you know, for later times. So that's basically it. That, that, that's what I do. And that works for me. Um, the other productivity tool I'll, I'll use, um, is uh so this is maybe a bit more uh my own kind of mania but i i have a tough time uh staying off social media and it's you know there, there are days where uh i used to have at least days where i could do nothing but 
you know, like surf Twitter and, and, and engage in conversations and, you know, tell myself this is actually work when it's usually just fighting and, and nonsense. Um, so I, but I just could not stop myself. I would tell, I'd give myself goals, okay, just, you know, only one hour, only 30 minutes or only at the end of the day or, or what have you. And I just couldn't, I couldn't resist. When I, once I turned on um, and I started checking, I, I'd be in this loops so where I'd be like going between um, Twitter, Facebook, email. Twitter, Facebook, email. I'd be doing that for hours. And it was horrible. So the only thing that I found to work for me is essentially, you know, what economists call pre-commitment devices. So they're essentially like committing to not being on it um, by, you know, by scaffolding that decision to, 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 to an external device. So essentially I've got an app that locks me out of social any sites that i choose for me social media uh, at set times during the day so at 9:30 every single day uh until i think 5:30 uh, other than maybe a 15 minute break uh my social media is off i cannot check it so i try to get all my tw- you know tweeting done you know early in the morning um and then i get to check again at the end of the day and then i then it turns off again in the evening um so and that's the only way that I can, you know, stay off it. That's that's one way I can stay on task, be productive, and do the things I really want to be doing, which is reading, writing, thinking, uh, check, you know, working on emails, working on projects that that, that you know that are required of me. So uh, that would be the second thing. And then the the final thing uh, in terms of you know uh, organizational aids is I will actually, you know, we have all this unstructured time. And uh, of course, a lot, as a professor, there's lots of that time that, that's filled in with meetings with the you know students. Uh, there are service requests, although uh, at the University of Toronto, not a lot uh, uh, service requests, thankfully. Um, so I've got a lot of free time, unstructured time. And if if I don't plan something, uh, those days will just you know uh, float away. Uh, so I will put goals for myself. I'll be okay on, you know, for three hours on Wednesday, I'm going to work on this review, uh, uh, in the morning. And then the afternoon, I'm going to read this one paper that I've got to read, to uh, read for, or I'm going to like, you know, work on my, um, on my slides for class or what have you. So, uh, yeah, I just put like actual, uh, items that I need to be doing, uh, in those times. And then, and then I'm, you know, I'm structured. I'm not just kind of like, Oh, what am I, what am I doing today? And then you're kind of procrastinating for a while and then you get no work done. Um, so let's see, I, uh, I'm really interested to talk about your podcast and, uh, it's one of the great psychology podcasts out there. Um, you do it with your co-host, you Um, and, uh, I think one of the things you guys do especially brilliantly is the topics that you pick, right? So you, you release about once a month and uh, I think you guys have a good sort of feel for what are the, the topics that are, um, sort of somewhat talked about uh in in the sort of public public consciousness but not necessarily the ones that are oversaturated right and so i think you guys end up um, bringing some really cool unique and worthwhile perspectives to a lot of, of, of cool topics so thank you for doing that and well, thank um, you for saying that <laughs> yeah so when did when did you guys start doing that podcast uh, so well, let me just uh, clarify a couple of things. So we actually come out once every two weeks, um, although we have had periods where we take a break. So uh, we had like actually this past winter, we came out only uh, for two months. We were just doing um, 
with they were coming out once a month uh, because uh, of a break and various reasons. And I was on sabbatical last year, so but t- our typical schedule is once every two weeks or so twice a month. And uh, that that the podcast is called Two Psychologists Four Beers. Um, so we. Um, uh, how did this come about? So it, it, it's been going. Uh, it's going to be in May. It'll be two years, which is kind of strange to think think about it. That it's been already almost that almost two years. Uh, how did this come about? Uh, so you all and I are friends. Uh, we're colleagues here at the University of Toronto, and uh, we were just we would just hang out uh, and talk about the stuff we talk about on the podcast already. And usually we talk about open science, we talk about the gossip, we talk about like, you know, reforms in science or, you know, or, or, or studies that we, we thought, you know, deserve criticism. And we kind of just gossip and talk about the field a little bit. And we'd meet once every few weeks, once a month, whatever, and usually over beers because uh, I, I legitimately, li- legitimately like drinking beers. And, um, and then we're like, wouldn't it be fun to have a podcast? Uh, and this is after being, uh, after listening to some other psychology podcasts, most notably for me at least, uh, there's another podcast that I like and could plug called The Black Goat. And they're uh, some f- friends of mine who started and it just was such a delight to hear them in the car on my, on my, on my commute to work. And it was like having friends in, in, you know, uh, in my ear. It was like having a conversation with them. And I just enjoyed it. I enjoyed listening to them. And it just sounded like they're having so much fun. So, you all and I said, "We well, we'd like to have fun like that too." So let's let's just try. And um, I think from the get go, uh, we wanted it to be well. We wanted it to be a little bit different than theirs. We wanted it to be uh, their podcast, which we love, is really geared, I would say, more towards early career researchers, uh, graduate students, postdocs. Uh, you know, they do a lot of advice giving, which I think is a great service. Um, but we wanted ours to be more, uh, I, I think nominally it's about like controversies in academia and beyond. So we wanted it to be a combination of politics, of, you know, popular culture, culture war kinds of things, but mostly about science and mostly about open science and mostly about psychology. Um, so we tried to have a mix sometimes, you know, I think in, in, in the early going, um, we were a bit more, uh, uh let's say culturey, um, uh, more, um, leaning towards, um, some of the culture war topics that, 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 you know, we were interested in, interested in at the time. And more lately, I would say we've been really honing in on, on more of the science. Um, but we try to go a little bit back and forth uh, if we can, I think we get bored of one and then we kind of, we, 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 we switch it up a little bit. I have a question about the name. Um, which is that, so it's, it's two psychologists for beers. I think that most people, if they, if they sort of extrapolate from that, they feel like the number of beers would scale linearly with the number of psychologists, yeah. right? So each psychologist could two. but do you think it's possible that the number of beers could scale geometrically with, with psychologists, right? So if you had, if you had four psychologists, would there then be 16 beers? <laughs> yeah. Uh, right. Have you guys, funny. have you guys run a... And a controlled experiment to see how how the number of beers scales with the number of, of psychologists. Uh, well, we have run not controlled experiments. But we've had a number of psychologists on there, and typically it's uh, it's just due per person. Yeah, so the exception it does might be with yeah. yeah. Uh, the exception would be with my good friend, and 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 she's been on our show a few times now. She'll be coming out uh, another episode with her coming out shortly. Um, was Liz Page, Liz Page Gould, one of my best friends, and uh, she she and I like to drink a lot, so we. Uh, Occasion we'll have more. I don't think we have. I don't, I'm not sure we've had nine when uh, she's been on, but we certainly had yeah. more than six. Um, so, but yeah, but the name is is kind of funny because we just were kind of working with names and 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 
you know, uh, we had like the, the, the previous name we were going with is Two Loud Jews because <laughs> uh, you and I are both Jewish. But um, we thought that might attract a different kind of crowd. Um, and uh, and then and then uh, the name uh, some, actually it's kind of hilarious. Some people I've heard uh, I, I've thought that the name is referring to um, uh, two girls, one cup. Uh, right. your, your, your listeners, if they don't know what that is, they can they can Google it or not Google it if they want. All right, yeah, yeah, don't Google it. Um, but actually, where it kind of really came from um, was. Uh, that uh, that Jerry Seinfeld show, what is it like? Comedians in cars getting coffee. A very descriptive uh, name. Um, so we, we, at first, oh, you know, like psychologists drinking beers with you know psychologists with opinions drinking beers was kind of we're iterating on that, and then it became two psychologists. Actually, at first it was two psychologists six beers because you all thought it would be it would be fun if we got had three you know three beers each. But, you know, I was like, we're not going to be able to do that. That sounds crazy. And given that he hardly drinks even two beers, um, it's absurd that he even thought uh, six beers was a, was a, was a good name. <laughs> um, and then so how is that, how has doing the show gone differently? Was it, has it gone the way that you guys expected it when you started it? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what my expectations were. My, my main goal was just to have fun. Um, have you accomplished that goal? Yeah, certainly accomplish that goal. Uh, to have fun and to also have like kind of maybe sometimes difficult conversations. Um, like uh, I think part of uh, part of it was um, so you all and I are are both. I like to think we're heterodox heterodox thinkers. We're both I think identify with the left. We're both you know uh, liberals, but maybe not uh, so entrenched uh, in some of uh, like. Hard the hardcore left, and and we 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 found it, or I found it at least sometimes difficult to express opinions that were not part of the orthodox left. Um, again, I'm still a liberal, but um, I might have a question about um, diversity statements, or I might have a question about you know uh, sex differences, and in certain circles you can't. Um, if you even ask the question, uh, gets you labeled uh, all kinds of isms, and that actually has happened to us a little bit. There have there have been people who have perceived us as being, um, you know, uh, bad people. I think because we 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 had we we deigned to ask some of these questions. So, for example, we had a podcast, one of our most popular podcast episodes, um, is called "When Does the Left Go Too Far." And that was just like us, you know, um, it was actually a, a question posed by uh, my my colleague and very, very controversial and very, very famous figure, Jordan Peterson, who, you know, I thought asked an interesting question. Like when, like, you know, we, we know when the, the right goes too far, when they're racist, when they're, you know, engaging in xenophobia. But are there any, you know, times when the left goes too far and how we know when they've gone too far? And, you know, he gave some answers, which I disliked. I thought they were frankly idiotic um but uh but i thought the question was worthwhile but i think even asking that question and answering that question is forbidden in certain circles so you know the podcast for us has served also as a way for us just to talk about ideas that we thought would be um uh we we couldn't we wouldn't wouldn't be allowed to talk about these things in polite company and i think because we've gone to the into some of those uh some of that territory although not a lot especially not lately um some people, I think, see us a certain way, um, you know, politically. Uh, but uh, but if anything, I think, you know, the, the big surprise for me is like that the show is actually, you know, quite popular. Um, and not more popular than I thought it would be. Um, let's put it that way. We have more listeners than I thought we would have. Um, 
not a huge audience by any, by any stretch of the imagination, not like uh, our, our, our friends and rivals at Very Bad Wizards, uh, a podcast we also like, and we kind of have, we, we talk to each other th- via our podcast. It's kind of funny. Um, but uh, yeah, we've had a pretty- But those sons of bitches have been going since 2012. Yeah, 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 that's right. They've been going for a long time and they've got a huge audience. That is a long ass time. Yeah, years. yeah, they've been doing it for a long time. And uh, and they're really good at it too. So uh, props to them. Um, yeah, they're they're good. So, yeah. So, it's a bit so, of, so, what do you think about the sat, like the market of podcasts itself, right? Because there's sort of this trope that, like, okay, well, everyone has a podcast. There's, uh, you know, sort of a saturation of it. But I'm not sure that I, I, I agree with that characterization. My, my thought is that a podcast might end up being, you know, sort of later on, uh, at more like writing an essay, right? We don't look at everyone writing essays and New York Times op-ed piece and be like, oh, everyone writes essays. Uh, Why why does everyone need to do that, right? And so I think um, having a podcast, uh, just the nature of the medium, uh, it might not be that we're at a saturation point for it, but we will actually um, reach sort of a a point where it increases to to having stuff like uh, Very Bad Wizards or um, Two Psychologists, Four Beers, or this show be uh, much more common. Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. I've really thought about that. Thought of it that way. Like, yeah, a lot of us we all write essays, or at least people in our profession. Um, and some of them are read, some of them are not read. And uh, no, yeah, no one's criticized for writing. Oh, you're writing another essay, you too. That's hilarious. I never actually thought of it that way. I wonder if it's you know because listening to a podcast is a bit more of a commitment than committing to reading an, an essay. Or at least, at least there's a perception of it being more of a commitment, um, because. But that's not necessarily true, right? That's right. the crucial thing: is that um, it, it it is something you can do in many more different environments than you can read an essay. Because there's one environment in which you can read an essay, which is you sit your ass down and you look at it. But then there are arbitrarily many uh, environments in which you can listen to a podcast because you can listen to things while doing a number of, of other activities, like driving, walking, uh, you know, doing whatever it is. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I mean, I think the one thing maybe the reading has or essays, essay reading has, is you can quickly skim within like 10 seconds, look at a headline, read an abstract. You're like, am I interested or not? I suppose you can do that with the podcast by looking at the title and maybe the description, but that doesn't fully give you the flavor. So I feel you got to listen at least for like 10 minutes before you then change the channel. Well, um, you know, uh, Mickey, you may not be familiar with this, but there's, this, there's some research that says things that require effort. Are, are valued a lot more high, highly than, than things that require less effort. So yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah, you're using <laughs> you're using uh, my words against me. Um, that's like yeah, but you know that's true. But don't forget about the other part of the effort paradox, and that is that when some things are effortful, people are less likely to do it to, to begin with. So that's that's what I'm talking about. It's like the, because there's a slight effort cost there, people might uh, be less willing to listen, but I, I take your point. I, I think it's a great medium and um, I don't think we should be discouraging people from doing it. And as long as people like doing it, uh, who cares? Uh, maybe they're not going to have a lot of listeners, but, uh, or maybe they will, but like, as long as you like doing it or anyone likes doing it, then um, great. So part of the thing with the medium though, is that it's much more intimate than writing is, right? And I think that that is for me at the heart of, um, of all these things. Right. So so people are much more devoted to something like a podcast than in general they are to you know people's written words um, because uh, someone gets to take over your inner monologue. That's an extremely uh, intimate experience. 
Uh, you get uh, to hear someone's voice. You uh, and then, like you said, you have to spend more time on it. So in a sense, it's more costly. And um, you also uh, you have to listen to it, even if you listen to it at you know one and a half speed or whatever. You have to you have to do the whole thing. You can't just sort of pick and through, pick and choose and be like, okay, well, yeah, I got the main points. Now I'm going to move on, right? So it forces you to that. And the, the sort of totality of that is that you create this intimate bond with the people to whom you listen on a regular basis. And that's not necessarily, it's much, it's at least much easier to do that in the, in a podcast than it is with, with other stuff. And that's a huge, huge way in which the medium itself exerts an influence on the kinds of content that gets created and how it gets consumed. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I mean, that, that, that is interesting. Um, I think the, the bond one you form with, uh, the podcast hosts or hosts, um, and that's real. Um, and it, it makes it more enjoyable and makes it more fun. And it's also like, you know, being on the, the kind of the receiving end in a way, it's a bit strange a little bit too. Um, people, you know, I j just came back from a big conference and I had, I, I had more people talk to me about and ask me about the podcast than about anything else uh, that I do. And like people, I think people feel they know me a bit more. Um, they certainly act that way. Um, and like one thing we do in the podcast is we, um, we've, uh, we've solicited people to give us beer, to donate beer to us. We'll drink it. And we usually, you know, talk about them or at least name their name. And I think people get a bit of a thrill out of being named. And, but then we got, you know, I have strangers giving us beer, uh, and like people kind of think about our taste and what we like. And it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting and fun. Um, uh, so people are thinking about us, uh, if there's an asymmetry there, uh, which is kind of strange. So one thing that uh, I'm kind of concerned of about this medium is that, um, so one thing about both audiobooks and podcasts, as opposed to reading, is that they are a much more passive process, right? If, if When it comes to reading, if you are not actively engaging with the words, even if your eyes are scanning them, if you're not actively engaging with, you're not going to, uh, it's not going to happen, right? Uh, whereas with listening, if your mind wanders, if you're doing something else, if you're coming in and out, it happens to you. So it is this fundamentally more passive way of consuming information, even if it's the exact same information. And so I think that's one of the reasons why it has proliferated in the way that it has uh, in the past few years, is that um, like social media, it is a much more fluid way of consuming information. Um, and then, of course, there's going to be a trade-off there which is that there's, there is some trade-off between how easy it is to consume information and then how deeply and uh, how meaningfully you're engaging that information and um, you know, thinking about it in this, in this sort of concentrated, critical way. Um, and so I, I do think that it has the potential to contribute to sort of overall decline, decline in the effort people are willing to put into um, you know, consuming ideas and being good consumers to ideas and, and, and being consumers of difficult ideas and not just uh, ideas as they're e most easily explained or, um, you know, most amenable to social signaling, right? And so uh, I do think that is the potential downside of the proliferation of this medium. No, no, I, I agree with all you, with, with everything you said. I think the, um, 
the, the point about it being encoded less, uh, I think, is is real and true. I think there is more power uh, still to to uh, to reading. So, for example, uh, if we make some interesting point, so we uh, uh, a few episodes ago now, maybe a couple months ago, uh, you all and I had a, had a um, an episode called "Against Experiments." And we're just playing with this idea of, um, at least in social psychology, have experiments actually led us astray? Um, and I won't get into the nuts and bolts of the argument, but it was a for for, for me at least it was a provocative argument because it's nothing I never thought of before, and it was based on something we read. Um, and then uh, my, my student, uh, one of my students, um, decided to. Uh, uh, for, for an invited a special issue of a journal to write a paper that kind of makes the same point uh, as the podcast. And I think because it is written down and people can read it, they can think about it more um, and digest it, It uh, even though more people for sure will have listened to the podcast, I, I think the, the article will have more of an impact at least among scientists, and that's for various reasons. Mostly because, well, one, we you know we 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 cite written work, not so much podcasts. Although I'm sure that's going to change. Um, but I think you know when you write stuff down, you also can see the holes in your own argument, and you know you can riff uh, verbally on a podcast, and um, it's sometimes hard to kind of keep everything consistent because you're you're talking and you're kind of you're riffing, and you might. F- forget something you said 10, 15 minutes earlier, or you might not realize that what you said 10, 15 minutes earlier is, is inconsistent with what you're saying now. And when you're writing something, uh, that becomes apparent more quickly, and, and certainly reviewers will catch that more, more readily. Um, so I think, yeah, I think, you know, uh, writing is not going away. I, I actually personally think that I am my best self uh, in, in the written form. Um, like I am like, I say what I want to say best in the written form. I think I'm like funnier and, and crazier, you know, verbally, um, when I'm, when I'm talking and I think people, you know, in some ways might enjoy it a little bit cause I kind of say impulsive things and, um, uh, and misspeak often. Uh, but my writing self is, is like in, in a way my true self or it's, it's the self that I want to be presenting, uh, that I most want to be presenting. Yeah. Yeah. I resonate with that a lot. I mean, uh, uh, certainly to me, the podcast, so I, I try to think a lot about, um, you know, how different mediums in, in influence different kinds of content. Um, and certainly it is harder to write well, especially depending on the, the context of what you're writing for, than it is to, to do a podcast, at least relatively well. Um, and part of that is the glory of podcasts. And then part of that, uh, is uh, what makes them, you know, ultimately sort of this uh, secondary medium to, to to transferring ideas through writing, um, because like when you are able to communicate that that voice and who you are through the written word, uh, and and the, especially as that builds up to a, a body of work over time, that's such a powerful thing. And that really, because I think I do think it is because it is so costly to consume that information. It just takes a damn long time to read a book. Um, that, uh, that, yeah, that, that writing will always have a sort of primacy because of that. Yeah, yeah, and th- there we are in the uh, the effort paradox again. Um, it's it's harder to consume, it's harder to to digest, and especially some writers are not are not uh, as skilled. Yet they might have brilliant ideas, uh, but because of its difficulty, we end up you know to some extent valuing it more. 
You know, uh, so before there was, there's one thing I want to mention uh, out of the effort paradox, which is that um, so before I was a cognitive scientist and interested in psychology and all this sort of stuff, um, I had a, a former life as a Christian. And one of the Christian thinkers that I absolutely loved was a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, and uh, so he was uh, sort of active in the Second World War, and he was actually part of uh, a plot to assassinate uh, Hitler, which he was unsuccessful at. Um, but he has a, a whole body of uh, what I still think of as very interesting writing. And one of the ideas that he has is this idea of, of costly grace, right? And so the idea is that, so you think, uh, okay, so the, you've got the Christian message, which is that like, Jesus saves all your sins, you're good to go. It's, you know, by grace alone you're saved, etc. Um, and uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying, look, well, no. So the, the actually part of the deal is that you have to put in a, uh, not necessarily symmetrical, but your own portion of the, the thing here. And so this was the first time that I started thinking about the sort of relationship between effort and meaning, right? So in this case, in this religious context, it's going to be, um, uh, between the sort of meaningfulness uh, with which you're, you're living with this religious value. But uh, that was when I first became sensitive to the idea that effort was um, something that we derived fundamental value from. Uh, and that the more effort we put into something, basically um, connecting it with, you know, we sort of learn later on in economics is that you have the sunk cost fallacy, right? We just have the sunk cost fallacy uh, in economic terms, uh, meaning that you throw good money after bad, but actually the sunk cost fallacy, uh, sort of in line with what your work says, is one of the fundamental ways in which humans construct meaningful relations to the things in their life, right? The things that have been around longer and they put more investment into, they care about more. And when you sort of extract from the economic standpoint, look at it from a, you know, more like a spiritual standpoint from the Dietrich Bonhoeffer perspective or uh, the psychology of value, then you get, uh, you know, sort of what your work has said about uh, effort and value and how costly things become sort of, uh, you know, they become more highly valued. Mm, that's cool. I, I, I never uh, never heard that uh, that specific connection before. That's very interesting. Um, I liked uh, especially the way you, you, you use the term effort, uh, you know, we effort produces meaning. Um, so I've said effort produces value. Um, and you're saying effort produces meaning, and I, I that's a slightly different thing, but I think that makes sense. Yeah, and that's that's very interesting. Absolutely. No, I, I'm bastardizing what you are saying for my own purposes. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, I in my, I mean, you you uh, have empirical evidence. I'm obvi I'm obviously drawing on sort of sort of speculating sort of philosophical evidence um, based off of this Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Source. There's a lot of different things floating around in my mind on this topic. Um, but I do think that there is a direct connection between effort and meaning, though perhaps we understand less of it in the sort of empirical domain. Yeah, that's a that's a I think an an, an idea worth pursuing. Um, so I a long time ago now I, I used to work on meaning. So this one model uh, which was popular in, in social psychology about a decade ago called the meaning maintenance model. Um, you know, asking how people make meaning in their lives and what meaning actually means. Um, and uh, yeah, I never actually thought about uh, what, what role effort plays. But, to the, you know, if effort connotes value, which I think it does, then um, does it help us, yeah, construct 
you know, meaning in our life? Um, or is it, does it kind of map a terrain for how to live a life? I have to think about that. That's, that, that's, that's an idea worth, uh, I think, sticking your teeth into. Yeah, so I think another thing is that, so if you take the sort of abstract value of costliness, of which effort is one version of a way to make something cost something, um, one thing that I've been sort of meditating a lot on recently is um, costly in our life in the sense that they are add complication as opposed to streamlining things, right? Um, uh, so having to take your kids to soccer practice, I think is a classic example, right? That is one of the least efficient activities in which you could choose to engage your time. Yet you're totally right that that is the thing that is most in line with your values and what you're going to value looking back on your life more than anything are, is that time you spent taking your kids to soccer practice. Um, but it is fundamentally an efficient activity. So the things that are that add complication to our life also add meaning and uh, what I ultimately think of as thickness, right? If you had a life that was completely streamlined, completely efficient, it would be incredibly thin, right? And uh, so having uh, this sort of structure of complication and requiring of unnecessary effort and all this sort of stuff, I think, connected to um, things we perceive as meaningful and also the sense of thickness versus thinness of, of the sort of fabric of, of, of life that we're leading. Yeah, that sounds like your, um, yeah, that's also another interesting uh, observation. Thin, thinness and thickness, um, that could be, I mean, complexity, but it sounds like what you're, you're actually talking about a little bit more not so much complexity, but more like um, the perturbations in life, the, the difficulties in life. Um, yeah. Perturbations, go, I think interwovenness maybe, right? Like there's this sense that, um, I don't know, like to me, if, if I thought of my most efficient life, uh, it would be removed and I removed the things that, uh, uh, you know, were the thing distract me from, from being awfully productive. Um, then I would get a lot of shit done but it would be just a very thin existence. Yeah, but the only way that one could actually do that is one if one had very few goals, right? If you have lots of goals, then eventually you're going to discover that the goals will conf- one goal will conflict with another goal, um, and mostly because time is limited. So I want to spend time with my kids, and I want to work on my manuscript. Uh, conflict. Uh, what do I do? Uh, so there's no efficient answer there. There's none. I got to do one and then the other. But if I do one, I can't do the other, at least right now. At least not right now. Um, so I think, uh, you know, I, 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 that might be a fiction, like, a, a, you know, a completely efficient life. Uh, yeah, I think that person's life would be thin, mostly because they've got a very, very few goals or goals that certainly don't... Um, uh, uh, interfere with one another, or it would be like, I mean, it sounds like a robot, to, to be frank, someone who structured their life so efficiently that they've maximized all their time and, and able to do everything all, you know, exactly at the right time. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, life is not like that. There's all kinds of um, mistakes happen, unexpected things happen, uh, accidents happen. And uh, when those things happen, then um, you got to figure out, you have to reprioritize and reschedule and re rejig things. So for example, my kids, uh, um, my kids, uh, school is going on strike tomorrow. Um, we have, you know, our, the, the, the teachers and my provincial government are at odds. Uh, they have been at odds for, for months. Well, like that's, that's a perturbation in my life. I can't, I can't maximize the efficiency of that. I could have planned for that uh, too far in advance. Um, 
and it means that it's going to be like, okay, I take the kids to work. Um, I'm going to I'm going to have to do you know fewer things when I'm at work. Um, so you can't be completely efficient there. But again, you do that because well, there in, in this case, I've got a, 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 a responsibility, a legal responsibility uh, over my children. Um, but I'd also have a, an ethical one, right? I, I value them and want their. I, I care about their well-being. So family is more important than work. So I'm going to you know put them before before work, um, and that's. That's okay, even if it's not exactly what I want in an ideal world. Love it. Well, uh, thanks for taking the time to do this today. I think uh, we've been going for a while now, so uh, I appreciate you taking the time to do this, and I'll let you get going about your day at this point. Yeah, well, thanks a lot, uh, Cody. I appreciate it, and uh, good luck with the podcast. I hope uh, I hope you can continue doing it. Uh, one thing that um, I learned about when I first we were contemplating uh, getting this going is uh, this this term called pod burn, which I think uh, means like uh, like people start podcasts but then it fades out, uh, and like apparently most podcasts don't make it past ten episodes, and, and I think it's because it's a relatively easy entry, um, but it's hard to maintain because it is a lot of work. I mean, it is like you know writing an essay every two weeks, like one that takes hours and hours and hours because you got to record it, you got to plan it, you got to. You know, edit it. You got to put it out. You got to promote it, etc. Takes lots of time. Um, so, anyways, I, I encourage you to, to keep to keep going, and I and I wish uh, wish you lots of, lots of success. I appreciate that. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess uh, I I do see myself continuing to do it because it is easily the most immediately gratifying professional experience ever engaged in. So, oh, that's great. Um, uh, I, I I really have enjoyed it so far. But yes, I look forward to being able to one day say. Man, I can't find I've been doing this for two years. Where where's the time going? Yeah. Yeah. And see you in two years. Or uh, you how long have you been doing it for a year and a half or something? You've been doing it for like six months or I started uh I started planning it in August or September of last year. And so mm-hmm. I've put out an episode every week since then. The first episode released oh gosh, what was it? Uh, it would have been uh beginning of October. Um mm. in October twenty second. 2019. Um, and uh, uh, I have wished 17 of them so far. And um, I think with the uh, after after this, I'll be up to uh, through number 20. Cool. That's great. Yeah. yeah. And you're doing it once a week. So. That's fantastic. So keep at it. Yeah, it's fun. All right. Thanks, Mickey. I'll talk to you later. All right. You're welcome. And good luck to you. Bye. Bye. Okay. So that was my conversation with Mickey Inslicht. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you'd like to connect with either of us, you can do so on Twitter. You can also subscribe to this show on whichever platform you're listening through. uh, And you can connect with me through my email newsletter, Dear Luke. And uh, I will be back here with another interview next week. And I will see you then on Cognitive Revolution. Cognitive Revolution.